There are places in the world right now, I'm sure all of you could testify to this, that a generation ago, just a generation ago, maybe 40 years, um, the church was very active, very alive, all kinds of ministries, right? There really wasn't too many people, weren't too many people who did not attend church. And now, in those same places, it's spiritually dead. Very few people attend church. People don't even know the basic plot of, of the Bible, right? And there's church buildings, and yet these are just empty shells that serve as uh, a reminder of days gone by. I'm sure all of us can um, think of places, perhaps in Europe or uh, in the States or in Canada, um, that are spiritually dead, that just a generation ago were full of life. Likewise, on the other hand, there are places in the world right now where a generation ago there was no church. Or if there was a church, it was a very small sliver of the population. And where today, the church is exploding. It's growing exponentially, right? There's churches that are planting, church planting churches, right? And there's gospel, there's new radio programs, um, all sorts of things. But a generation ago, that wasn't there. Well, what makes the difference? Why is it that some churches decay in some places and some advance in others? The even more important question that every church must ask is, how do we avoid becoming the decaying, declining kind, and how do we become the advancing kind? Every church must ask that. You guys in particular need to wrestle with that question because you're a small church, right? A big church, they, they could be dwindling for a, a generation. They have tons of funds. They have a lot of people. You guys don't have that much time. You have to wrestle with this question. Well, the thing that makes the difference, not just here but in every church, is how seriously the believers take the call of their Lord to be salt and light in the world, with very few exceptions. An exception to this might be in a place where the church is simply wiped out by persecution, right? They were wiped out because they were salt and light. I think of the Reformation in France. Um, if you've ever heard of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, it was basically when all the Protestants in France were killed. I think tens of thousands, right? Well, they were martyrs and they were salt and light. But with few exceptions, with those, it's when we fail to be salt and light like our Lord commanded. Well, with that in mind, let's look at our passage now where our Lord will explain, one, what it is to be salt and light, two, what things hinder Christians from being salt and light, and three, how to grow practically in being salt and light. So point number one, what does it mean to be salt and light? Well, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, calls them two things, two metaphors, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, what exactly does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean, as some people think, that for every uh, truth about salt, right, there's a corresponding truth about a Christian, right? Just as salt um, can purify things or it can keep it from decaying so also the christian has that effect in his society 
Just as salt has taste, so also uh, a Christian brings taste and life uh, into the world where they live. Well, I think some of that is here. I really do. But I think what Jesus is saying is, is something bigger than that. It's, it's a bit simpler, but it's bigger picture than that. I think he's simply saying that just as salt and light have a vitally beneficial impact on the things they come into contact with, so also a Christian is to have a vitally beneficial impact on the world around them. Now I say vitally beneficial, not just good, not just nice, but crucially, crucially necessary to life. Why? Well, salt and light are still very useful in our own day, but they uh, are nowhere near as useful as they were in the ancient world. For example, the Roman uh, author Pliny the Elder, who he also lived during Jesus' lifetime, he said, nothing is more useful than salt and sunlight. Now, we don't feel the importance of salt and sunlight like they did back then because we have all kinds of technology, right? On the one hand, uh, in the ancient world, not only was salt used for taste, but pr- for preserving food, right? Uh, I don't know exactly how, to, how the process of salting meat, but I'm pretty sure as soon as you slaughter a cow or whatever, you, you, rub, it, you rub salt into it, and it keeps it from, from putrefying, right? Well, if you lived back then, you didn't have a refrigerator, okay? And if you wanted to have meat, you had to have salt, I think we would feel the importance of this. Imagine if you couldn't use a refrigerator for a month. Imagine that. And then you finally get it back, and it's like, oh, it's so good to have this, right? That was salt in the ancient world. So also with light. We don't think about this at all, because all we have to do is go back there somewhere and flip on a switch, and we have really bright light, right? Most of our streets are lit up by good Street lights, but back in the ancient world, there's pretty much only three sources of light. You have the sun, you have the moon, and fire, right? And if it was nighttime and there was no moon out that night, and it was dark, and you didn't have fire, if you didn't have a lamp or a torch, you can't see anything. You can't just pull your phone out of your pocket and turn your flashlight on, right? If you lost something, you're not going to find it. If you have to get work done, it's not going to get done, right? The closest we get to feeling this way is during a power outage. Imagine if you had a power outage for a month. Have you ever had that and you can finally turn the lights on again and it's like, yes, oh my gosh, this is, life is so much easier like this. Salt and light were absolutely vital in the ancient world. Well, when our Lord says that we are salt and light, he means that just as salt and light have this amazing impact on those things that they come in contact with, so also the church is to have this vital impact on the world around them. It is paramount that a Christian's life be felt in their families and in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces and in their cities. Spurgeon says, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians, Christians whose virtues would never be displayed. The pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or anyone else. If you're a Christian here today, God calls you, commands you, this is not optional, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world to those around you. 
because only you have the gospel. The world doesn't have that. They don't have that, and you do, and you are the salt and light of the earth when you share that with them. Well, how then exactly is the Christian salt and light to those around them? Well, first, the Christian is salt and light by the uniqueness of their lifestyle. The uniqueness of their lifestyle. They just simply aren't like the world around them. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. In this passage, Paul is contrasting the... Let me find it first. Um, Starting in verse, we'll say 19. He's contrasting the works of the flesh by the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to how he... He describes the works of the flesh in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's the world. That's how the world is. That's the character of the world. It's a dark place. But now continue on to the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. If you take a spirit-filled Christian that has that description and you place them in the world that is described by the works of the flesh, they shine like a beacon of light. They are just not like the world and the world sees it. I have a friend who uh, is a pastor now, um, but back in the day he used to work in a warehouse and he said one day he was working and one of his coworkers, who, who was a buddy of his, just kind of said, um, they, they weren't even talking about Christianity or something. And he said, so are you like a Christian or something? And he's like, uh, yeah, you know, that's like an evangelism opportunity, like falling in your lap. And he just kind of was like, yeah, yeah, I am. Why do you ask? And he's like, I, I don't know. I just like, you don't cuss and you do your work and um, you're not in the work drama. Like you don't talk about people. I, I don't know, like, do you go to church? And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I go to church. And um, he's a pastor now, but without even having spoken a word of the gospel, right? He wasn't like blaring his faith, his faith in everybody's face. The man just saw, this guy's different. What, almost like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you like this, right? That's the uniqueness of our lifestyle. The second way that a Christian is salt and light is the uniqueness of their message, right? The heavenly nature of the gospel stands in stark contrast against the background of the worldly wisdom of this age, right? Salvation by meditation, salvation by tuning out, salvation by good works. The Bible says, no, it's actually none of that. It's salvation by grace alone. The world says, like, that's, that's foolishness, right? The cross is foolishness. We preach a crucified Savior. It's completely different. 
In John 7, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, send officers to arrest Jesus, but they return without him. And the chief priests are kind of frustrated, and they say, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. (laughs) They just never heard pure truth like that. It blew people away because it was so unique. It was not from this world. And when you and I proclaim that message, it is salt. It is light. It is so different. Therefore, we are to be salt and light in this world by our manner of living and by our amazing message. However, there are things that can hinder us, cripple us even, from being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which brings us to point number two, things that can hinder us. Look at verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So continuing with his two metaphors of salt and light, he explains things that render these normally useful things useless, right? He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, technically speaking, salt, sodium chloride, can't lose its taste, right? Um, Some Bible commentators think that what Jesus is talking about is salt becoming diluted or mixed in with um, other elements so that it's just, maybe it's kind of like dirt. It looks white, but it's not salt. It's just, it's lost its taste. I think actually... um, Salt, um, I'm sorry, the fact that salt can't lose its flavor is the point. I think that salt that could lose its flavor is supposed to strike us as particularly useless. It would, it'd be like a fire that puts out no heat, right? Imagine it was, it's a cold night and you light this fire and it's a roaring fire and it puts out no heat. It'd be entirely useless, right? Or imagine if... Um, Heather plays keyboard, right? Elizabeth, dang it, I thought I had it. Um, Imagine if she came up here to to lead worship and she never missed a note, nailed it, and it wasn't plugged in. Wouldn't matter at all. She could have gone up there and just gone like this. We wouldn't know any difference, right? It's useless. You're not useless. That would be useless, okay? Um, Now, we can laugh about that, right? the uselessness of tasteless salt, the the uselessness of light under a basket, but don't miss what Jesus is saying. It actually stings. He is, in effect, saying, there is nothing more ridiculous in the kingdom of God than a Christian who is not salt and light to the unbelievers around them. It's nonsense. Well, how then does a Christian lose his saltiness? Or put her light, her lamp, under a basket. I'm going to give you three ways. The first way to lose your saltiness is sin. If you would not be very useful in the hands of God, and if you would be quite useful in the hands of the devil, then sin. 
If you would cripple your witness, then sin. Spurgeon says, A man who is to be a soul winner must have holiness of character. Ah, how few who attempt to preach this sufficiently think of it. If they did, it would strike them at once that the eternal never uses dirty tools, that the thrice holy Jehovah would only select holy instruments for the accomplishment of his work. So it is for us, brothers and sisters. We are messing around with sin. We cripple our witness. Furthermore, in some cases, Christians can actually push unbelievers away from the gospel because of their sin. Instead of bringing people to Christ, they push them away. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Now, in this passage, uh, Paul is actually criticizing the Jews for glorying in the law while breaking it. But it's also very applicable for the person who claims to glory in Christ and yet shows by their actions that they actually love sin. Okay? Verse 17. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, we could say, If you call yourself a Christian and rely on his blood and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then, I'm sorry, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it's so tragic when the name of Jesus is blasphemed to the world because of sinful Christians. Rather, Christians fooling around with sin, right? All all of us are sinful, but those who are messing around with it. The second way that a Christian loses their saltiness is to comprise the unique compromise, the uniqueness of their message. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16, that there are essentially two reactions to the gospel. Speaking of himself and the other apostles, he says, verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ, the aroma, right, Uh, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Okay, he's saying same gospel, same message, two completely different reactions. Some people go, that smells like death. Some people say, that smells like life. So it is with the gospel, with being salt and light. Believe it or not, uh, for Christmas, I got salt from my mother-in-law. It's this amazing salt called Maldens. Have you guys ever heard of Maldens, right? And if you put Maldens on a steak, it's actually given a royal warrant by Queen Elizabeth. They're official purveyors of sea salt. If you put that on a steak, brothers and sisters, it is mouth-watering. 
The saltiness of the gospel is mouth-watering to the soul that is being touched by the Spirit. It just tastes mouth-wateringly full of the grace of Christ. It's beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to have more of this, right? That's how the gospel tastes. So also with light. To the person being saved by the gospel, the gospel is light. It helps them to see things around them. It helps them to perhaps see reality in ways that they never saw it before. But to the unregenerate person, the saltiness of the gospel is disgusting. Uh, Last year, I I just took it upon myself to give my wife a break from cooking and I was going to make some chicken and I way, way overbrined it. Way overbrined it. And we ate it. We tried to eat it. And it made me sick. It was so salty. When the unregenerate person tastes the saltiness of the gospel, it's absolutely disgusting. It's like putting a spoonful of salt in their mouth. And when the unregenerate person sees the light of the gospel, it's blinding. It hurts their eyes. They try to turn away. It's like trying to stare at the sun for them, right? Well, some Christians see that negative response to the gospel and thinking that they are wiser than God, they think to themselves, you know what? Maybe I'll just dilute the saltiness of this message a little bit. Maybe I'll just turn down the brightness of the gospel and that way people will accept it, you know? And then over time, they'll, they'll crave, they'll have an appetite for saltier food and they'll, you know, once their eyes adjust, they'll, they'll want some more light, right? The sad thing is, After diluting the gospel once, the carnal heart still says, no, 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 send it back. Still way too salty. Still says, way too bright still. You didn't turn it down enough, right? And so little by little, true wisdom is diluted with worldly wisdom. And a heavenly gospel is replaced with a false gospel until eventually it's no gospel at all, right? We must be careful of not losing our saltiness by losing our message. Now, the last way that a Christian can fail to be salt and light is simply that they have no unbelievers in their life to be salt and light too. Or rather, not that they have no unbelievers, but that they aren't engaging unbelievers. A Christian may be a very holy man or woman. They may be full of the fruit of the Spirit, They may be very Christ-like, but if they are not engaging with unbelievers, they may be salt, but they're not the salt of the earth. A Christian may have a highly biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-saturated message, right? They may be steeped in theology and great at apologetics, but if they're not reaching out to unbelievers, they may be a light, but they're not a light of the world. It can be easy, brothers and sisters, to live in our nice little Christian bubbles, right? To go to church, to only hang out with unbelievers. Maybe to just stay in our family where we can only talk about the Lord there. And it's very nice. But Jesus didn't call us to be the salt and light of the Christian bubble, did he? The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Neither is it just being a good neighbor. I would even say it's not just that people know you're a Christian. 
It's not just being a good Christian coworker, right? They may know you're a Christian, but they don't even, may not even know what that means. Rather, to truly be salt and light requires something more of us. It requires that we intentionally pursue God-glorifying relationships with unbelievers in which they can see the uniqueness of our lives and hear the uniqueness of our message. Now, I say God-glorifying relationships because there's some places that a Christian has no business being, right? I'm not saying, like, go get hammered with the guys at the bar and share the gospel, right? That's, that's not being salt and light, okay? But still pursue relationships with unbelievers in a God-glorifying way. Well, having in point number one discussed what it means to be salt and light... And having in point number two described the things that can hinder us from being salt and light, in point number three, I want to give us some practical steps uh, for how we can grow in being salt and light. Well, the first practical step we can take, uh, brothers and sisters, is to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness. In my last year of seminary, I was taking a class called Pastoral Ministry Seminar. And uh, uh, Dr. Julius Kim, he was my professor, and he kind of threw it out to us. Uh, Gentlemen, what do you think's the best way you can prepare for ministry right now at this time in your life? And I thought for a second, and I thought I, I could probably take, I could get some more experience counseling. I could definitely use that, right? And so I said that. And some other guys said some other things, right? Uh, I don't know, more preaching experience or something like that. Better theology, I, I don't remember. But he said to us, um, men, those are all very good things, very excellent things. But if you would really pursue, or if you would really prepare yourself for ministry, you must pursue personal holiness. At first I was like, well, yeah, but that's, but the more I think about it, it's true. A, a person who's Christ-like, who spends time in Christ's word, when someone comes to them with a problem, well, they've been with the master, right? The apostles, it says that the Sanhedrin can tell they were with Jesus. And the person who is holy, they are powerful when it comes to sharing the gospel. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 through 21, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. People skills are helpful. A thorough knowledge of apologetics is great. But none of those things can compare to the tremendous power of a Christ-like Christian, brothers and sisters. Uh, Perhaps there's a relationship in your life where you think, I was not Christ-like at all. I completely blew it. I was the opposite of Christ to that person. I've lost my saltiness, right? How can I ever regain it? Well, It depends on how bad the damage is, right? But I've always been surprised 
by the ability of confession and repentance to help a Christian regain their saltiness. In fact, in some cases, I think they've become even more salty in a good way to unbelievers when they confess their sin and repent. I would encourage you, if you have someone in your life like that, give them a phone call. Don't wait. Say, you know what? I was an absolute monster in my behavior to you. Explain why it was out of line with the gospel. I was the opposite of Christ. Please don't look at my behavior and think Christ because I was not that. Will you ever forgive me, please, right? You'd be amazed at how God might use that. But even if the person says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm burned from you, quite frankly. They don't even want to talk to you. Well, then be encouraged that there's always room in the kingdom for Christians who blow it, for Christians who lose their temper, right? And even if that person won't listen to you, then trust in Christ and rely on his grace and begin anew to freshly pursue Christ-likeness. Now, I want to be careful at this point to not make it sound like only those Christians uh, who have it all together, who have completely conquered their sin, who no longer struggle with temptation, right? Only those people are salt and light in the world, right? No, because they don't exist, right? Um, A Christian who wages war against his or her flesh can still be salt and light in the kingdom. In fact, by their struggle, they show the truth of their message that Christ is better than sin. They show that there is grace. They're demonstrating that they are themselves relying on the unique message and they're pursuing Christ. They're trying to grow in the unique lifestyle of the redeemed, right? They are demonstrating the gospel. And quite frankly, if we are serious about growing in holiness, then this is a struggle that you and, all, or you and I are going to face, right? I once heard a pastor say that we grow in holiness the same way that trees grow. He said if you go outside and stand in an orange grove, you never hear trees groaning, right? Now, I get what he's trying to say. You abide in Christ, okay? But I find that the times in my life when I grow the most in holiness, there's a lot of groaning. There's even some tears, right? There's a lot of crying out to God. I fear that sometimes we have a romanticized view of growing in holiness. I know I often do. I know if I hear a sermon like this, uh, my checklist in my head is, great, new Bible reading plan, right? This is going to be great. I'll get my coffee in the morning. I'll have a time of prayer. Maybe I'll go through a good uh, Puritan theology book. It's, it's like fun, okay? That's how I tend to have this romanticized view of growing in holiness. However, there's a side of growing in holiness that is not romantic at all. There's a side... Uh, which terrifyingly involves the very ugly business of confronting new depths of sin in your heart that you did not, could not even think were there, right? It involves metaphorically plucking out eyes, cutting off hands if they lead you to sin. That's not romantic, right? That's not fun. It's warfare. 
And if we are serious to become salt and light, then we must make war, brothers and sisters, on our sin. And use Bible reading plans. Those are great. Use a prayer journal. Read some theology. All excellent tools, right? But count the cost. Go into the fight knowing that it's actually a fight and not just a vacation. The second way to grow in being salt and light is to grow in the knowledge of the unique message that you are to proclaim. The author of Hebrews said to his audience in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you want to be able to distinguish a true gospel from a false gospel? Do you want to be able to tell if you're mixing in worldly wisdom with heavenly wisdom? Then you must know. You must be well acquainted with the message you are to proclaim. Um, I, I think also if we are to grow in holiness, so often this is the first step. I fear that many Christians fail to grow in holiness because they have a deficient view of the gospel. It's because they don't even fully comprehend the message with which they're to proclaim to others that they, they struggle in sin for years, right? They don't know all the tools, all the promises of Christ that tell them that they're, they're free from sin and how to wage warfare. They don't know that. Like the author of Hebrews says, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness and therefore spiritual children. Therefore, let us grow in our understanding of the unique message which we are to proclaim. The third and last way to be salt and light is to intentionally cultivate relationships with unbelievers, to break out of that Christian bubble. Well, how do you do that, right? Um, it, the bigger question is, how do you not do that? There's opportunities everywhere. Don't wait as my one, uh, the same guy who used to work on the warehouse, don't wait for Jesus to come on a magic carpet and take you to ministry land, okay? It's all around you. There's no lack. The fields are white. Well, the first way to do this is to start where you already have relationships with your uh, neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, right? Perhaps unsaved friends. Spend time and talk with them. Invite them over for dinner. And don't just talk about, like, the game, how they're doing. You know, take an opportunity. Like, wow, can I pray for you? You know, just know that we love you. Um, hey, I don't mean to insult you, but what's your understanding of the gospel, right? I, I've always been surprised how um, unbelievers are much more willing, not all, but many are much more willing to talk about those things than we often think. I think we often think as soon as that happens, they're going to throw rocks at us. That's, that's not always the case, right? The next thing to do is to put yourself out there and make new relationships. Uh, there's a pastor in our town. Um, he's at the Escondido United Reformed Church, and um, he enjoys going to the gym. Uh, he's kind of yoked up, but it's not like, a, like an idol in his life or anything. Um, 
And he always has these amazing gospel conversations with people he meets at the gym. He'll meet with them and they'll tell him his life and he brings the word of Christ into it and then they'll get lunch together, right? It it doesn't have to necessarily um, be street evangelism, though we'll talk about that in a second, right? If there's something you like, if you're into cars, go meet with a bunch of dudes that do cars. Bring up Christ. Be open about what God's doing in your life. There's no lack of opportunities. If you're a mom and you're super busy with school, or not school, with kids, and you're like, uh, I don't really have time to be making new relationships, quite frankly. I have like three or four little relationships that keep me busy enough. Well, be salt and light to your kids. They need the gospel. Uh, Christians, Christian parents that are salt and light to their kids, oh, how powerfully they are used by God. And how powerfully are children used by God who grew up with parents that are salt and light. Another way to do this is to go out with Dennis. Let him show you. Watch someone who does street evangelism. It's okay, right? It's okay to walk up to a stranger. You'd be surprised how many of them will talk to you. You see, you see Paul in Acts 17. He went to the marketplace, right? Well, what does that mean? He went there and just started up a conversation with someone. Now, that's something that takes practice to learn how to do, but go with somebody who does it, right? Learn to do that. It's, it's terrifying, but it's also addicting. That's my experience. At first, it's terrifying. It's kind of like spicy food. You don't want to eat it, but the more you do it, you crave it. The more you share the gospel with people, the more you desire to share it more with people, right? You just got to get over that initial burn, but then it's good, okay? Um, maybe socially, you are not an outgoing extrovert, okay? Evangelism is not for extroverts only, okay? It's also for introverts. Maybe the sound, the going up to strangers and saying, hey, have you ever heard the gospel? Maybe that is terrifying to you, right? Can God still use you? Absolutely. I found a cool article about evangelism in the introvert, and it was written by an introvert. This is what it says. I I think it's very true. Introverts are as called to evangelism as anyone. In fact, God may have equipped us introverts for evangelism in a unique and unusual way. First, introverts naturally gravitate toward one-on-one interaction rather than large group conversations. While large group conversations are certainly helpful, one-on-one typically allows for deeper listening and sharing. Second, introverts often prefer listening and internal processing over speaking and verbal processing. This can greatly bless those who feel a need to be heard, known, and understood before seriously considering another person's viewpoint, which in this case would be the gospel. Third, introverts tend to develop deeper relationships with fewer people. The level of intimacy in these relationships has potential to foster an atmosphere in which the gospel can be more effectively shared with genuine love, sincerity, and trust. Fourth and finally, introverts enjoy spending time alone, especially after a long conversation. And what better thing to do while alone than to pray for the person with whom you just shared the gospel? We might even go so far as to say that God designed introverts to be even better vessels 
for the gospel. I think there's much to be said about that, right? What it comes down to, brothers and sisters, is this. Are you currently, me too, are we currently developing relationships with unbelievers to be salt and light? And if not, why not? Because quite frankly, that is the call, the command of our Lord Jesus. And if you guys want to be a church uh, that not just grows, that not just reaches the gospel, but uh, that your kids can go to, that your kids can have kids that later on can hear the gospel preached in the same pulpit, then you must be salt and light. Or else we too will be like those so many sad, tragic places where Christianity is not there. You just have a bunch of steeples and they're all empty. So in conclusion, let us pray that God would give us the grace and strength to be his witnesses. Let us seriously take to heart the words of this passage today. And if we do, brothers and sisters, we will be instruments in the hands of our Lord Jesus. And what greater joy is there than that? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we fall so short, Lord, in so many ways, God, of our calling, Lord. Lord, it's, it's amazing to me that you would use the church, Lord. Although many bag on the church, that's not my intent, Lord, but we are foolish, God. We are prone to division, Lord. We're prone to sin. We're prone to falling. We're prone to mixing in the gospel with worldly wisdom. And yet, God, the church is your chosen instrument, Lord. Oh, God, we pray that you'd use us, Lord. I pray, Lord, for anyone here struggling with sin who's crippled by that, Lord. Perhaps they feel like a hypocrite. Oh, God, show them that there is, first of all, grace and mercy for them this morning. That there's no condemnation even for hypocritical Christians, God. That they will still find a friend in Jesus. And God, show them, show them, God, how to fight their sin. Give them victory over that sin, Lord, that they may move on to maturity in Christ Jesus, God. I pray for anyone here who is not acquainted, who is unskilled in the word of Christ, Lord. May we grow in our understanding, Lord Jesus, of your truth. Keep us, Lord, from being those people, so many, Lord, that we see falling, Lord, falling to a fake gospel. People who we never thought would have fallen, and yet they've fallen. They've replaced truth with error. Oh, God, protect our souls from being that. And Lord Jesus, give us strength and boldness, Lord to reach out to unbelievers. Remind us, Lord, that you initiated contact with us when we wanted nothing to do with you. Oh, Lord, may we also be the initiators of contact with unbelievers, God. May we show them the light of Christ and his love and our kindness and grace that we, we, the way we share with them, God. I pray that you would use us as lights and salt, Lord, in our families, in our neighborhoods, God that we would help other Christians to be salt and light, and God, that you would use us in your kingdom. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in the or we ask all this, Father, in the name of your Son, Lord Jesus. Amen.